What's up, everybody? Before we get started with today's show, I just wanted to remind you, if you didn't know this, guys, we sell t-shirts. And the t-shirts we sell are pretty freaking awesome. I mean, one way to get them is by joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. And at certain levels, you get some merchandise. You can do that by going to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. Another way is just by going to our Lions of Liberty store at lionsofliberty.store. And you can check out all our different designs. Buy it right there. Taxation is death. Wax on, tax off. Or Are You Ready to Roar t-shirt. Electric Liberty Land t-shirts. Felony Friday t-shirts. Coming soon, Finding Freedom t-shirts. Bunch of different designs. We have Taxation is Death coffee mugs. Um, lots of crazy awesome designs. And we're going to be adding more and more as time goes on. So go check it out. Lionsofliberty.store. We are born free, and we will die free. The time in between, though, that's complicated. In that time, governments, institutions, and our egos will limit our ability to find true freedom in this life. These are real stories of real people overcoming the odds, persevering in justice, and unlocking their potential. Welcome to Finding Freedom. Here's your host, John Oderman. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another edition of Finding Freedom here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. And it is my pleasure to bring you Finding Freedom every Thursday, each and every single week. But this is not the only uh, show in town here on Lions of Liberty. We have a show every Monday hosted by Mark Clare. Mark has absolutely been crushing it. Um, Two weeks ago, if you haven't heard his interview with John Lee Dumas, John Lee Dumas is one of my heroes, one of the first podcasters I really listened to uh, in depth for years. Uh, He hosts a podcast called Entrepreneur on Fire. He's basically, he basically wrote the game on podcasting and how to monetize it. Incredible interview. That was last week. And then this week, uh, Mark had the debate with Dave Smith and and Tho Bishop. And it was, it was incredible. If you missed that, Go back and listen. And then Brian, he's been killing it too. Last week was Hotep Jesus and Thaddeus Russell. And this week, Brian with another awesome episode, as he does, going through those current events and getting it done. So subscribe if you haven't. Check out the Lions of Liberty podcast. And, uh, you know, speaking of podcasts, another great one out there. If you like... uh, if you want something different, if you're maybe sick of the libertarian stuff and you want to listen to some cowboy shit, you want to listen to some uh, maybe some crude jokes, maybe you want to learn about what it's like to be a cowboy in real life in America. So check out Burning Daylight with Matt McKinley. Awesome little podcast. He was on uh, last week. We had a, a bonus edition last Saturday of Libertarians in Living Rooms Drinking Liquor. It was a great time. So check out his podcast and check out today's podcast Really, really excited for you guys to, to hear today's episode. Talking about an awesome documentary, getting into uh, the details of some, some futuristic uh, technology. Really, really exciting stuff. Let's get right to it. My guest today on Finding Freedom is Patrick Reasonover. Patrick is the producer of a new and award-winning documentary. It's called They Say It Can't Be Done. Uh, in short, this film follows four revolutionary companies with the technology to cure global threats. Unfortunately, government regulation is standing in the way, which that's the case with with a lot of things in this world. Patrick, welcome to Finding Freedom. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to being being here with you. 
Yeah, it's it's good to uh, good to speak with you, man. And I got to be honest with you, watch this your documentary all the way through last weekend, and I will probably watch it again because I was when you're getting ready for an interview, you're kind of saddled with uh, not being able to just sit back and kick your feet up and relax. And I was taking notes and things, so I probably will will watch watch it all again. Very very well done, and honestly, like uh, we'll get into talking about the different aspects of it. I talked about the different industries as addressing hunger with uh, cell culture, technology, growing meat, climate change through uh, synthetic trees, right, to take CO2 out of the environment. And those two things especially were things that going into this, I would not be someone that would, you would say would, would support something like that, but it really, really opened my eyes. So kind of first question, what was the reason? What motivated you to, uh, to really want to go down this path and investigate these different technologies? Um, well, you know, we're really interested in general with the production company about um, the imagination and innovation and creativity. And, you know, in this world today where we see a lot of media that's really ideologically driven, it's all about, you know, coming from a certain rationalistic ideology. And, and most conversations are not conversations, they're just positions arguing against one another. And so there's no way to solve those things because often when someone's coming from a different ideology, they're just operating under different premises. And so in order to, you know, kind of unify these conversations uh, or solve kind of some of these conflicts, we really love, you know, the vehicle of the story. I was a philosophy major and a creative writing uh, major. So I kind of had both those threads going early on. And so for us, this material gave us a way to look at problems that are endlessly argued about in the media. But there's the presumption is always that there's a government solution or that there's a logical solution, when in fact, we sort of know that all problems are solved through imaginative solutions that are come up with by innovators, entrepreneurs, engineers, you know, folks who are really just looking to figure out what the problem is and come up with uh, solutions and then bring them to market where consumers and just the act of practice mm -hmm. will test and see what is the best solution. So we this began the documentary by selecting some of the biggest global problems. And we weren't selective about that in the sense where they were our problems, but just what we perceived that people around the world, no matter what their you know, ideological background is, would, you know, would say is a problem. And uh, so we wanted epic problems. And then we wanted to go and do research and find out, well, are there imaginative creative solutions that are out there right now that at scale could solve those problems? And so we did. Mm -hmm. And there's four stories in the film. Now we saw many, many, these are examples. There's many, many, many people all around the world and even in these various industries who are also working to solve these problems. Um, but we, we picked these and then we basically tested our regulatory state. Is it helping them? Is it harming them? Is it making things more costly? Uh, because if it is, then that's a problem because these are viable solutions to problems everyone cares about. Mm -hmm. So if we want them solved, then we have to figure out how to empower the people who are working to solve them. 
So what was your process? You talked about these four problems, and they are obviously, I don't think anyone's going to argue that these, these are four huge problems when you're talking about hunger, climate change, ocean sustainability, and organ transplant shortages. I mean, people could argue around the edges of each of those, but I think everyone would agree that you know they're, they're each massive problems. So what made you pick those four? Well, it, you know, there was a lot of issues that we looked at, a lot of, you know, innovations, and we just thought that those were the most epic, you know, mm-hmm. just the most epic when you, when it comes to, you know, carbon in the atmosphere. And certainly we took the position in the film. I know there's a debate about whether or not it's good that there's carbon in the atmosphere, mm-hmm. uh, but we just, we, unless we wanted to make a film about that, we needed to take a position on it. And so we took the position that, um, you know, that there's, we have taken carbon out of the ground and put it into the atmosphere. And in a tragedy, the common situation where the atmosphere is not owned, it is dumped there. And so uh, nominally, we don't want to just have people dumping into a commons, you know, be it the sky or the, or the ocean. Right. And so, you know, so it gets no bigger than global warming in ocean <laughs> atmospheric carbon. Yeah. So that was an obvious one. And then oceans are really connected to that because they're part of the carbon cycle. And they're really the great undiscovered part of our world, you know, for development. And so those were easy. Uh, When it came to the organs, um, you know, the real problem that we saw was rising, skyrocketing costs to healthcare, increasing regulation in such a way that is harming access. And so while the 3D printed organs solve the problem of, the organ transplant plant list mm-hmm. in an even bigger way, they solve the entire healthcare, you know, access and expense problem. And so, I mean, when you don't need to do testing for these drugs that just treat or make livable conditions, and instead you can print new organs. So the treatments are not needed because the condition is cured. Right. Which you- is in, I mean, just to pause on that for a minute, just to, Pick and you can you can watch it if you watch the documentary. The printing of these organs, it is. I had no idea how how far ahead that technology is. How how advanced it is already. Just amazing. It is amazing, and it, it's sad that it's not farther along than it is because it certainly could be. You know, um, mm-hmm. the amount of money that is needed to be raised just to do that. You know, just to meet any sort of base standards before it can even be brought to market. It kind of cripples the ability of the guys to make it work. Um, so that was a big one. And then the access to food really, um, and, the, and then the animal animal welfare component of the cell-cultured meat, which is like what you just described with the, cell, with the printed organs, where you can print a steak or print mm-hmm. a chicken breast um, or uh, really anything. You know, Wagyu beef, steak, chicken nuggets. It's actually the same cost you know, because it's the same process. So you have a means of delivering or creating any kind of meat or food that's actual meat and uh, delivering it around the world in a way that requires no animal agriculture. So that one may seem small, but in fact, it's huge because it involves all the other elements. The runoff and waste from factory farms goes into the ground and the sea. It requires enormous, I think two-thirds, a third of all arable land just to feed those animals. So to me, I really love the imaginative thing where you just imagine the planet Mm -hmm. with 
a third or two thirds of that land back put to other use. Um, the millions of people who work in animal agriculture no longer having to do that and instead able to go and do other things with mm-hmm. their time and their resources and their creativity. Um, just phenomenal. And so that, that's how we landed on those. Yeah. And, okay. Just so I guess to dive deeper here and we'll start since we were just talking about the, uh, the hunger problem here and solving that problem or one way to kind of solve that problem through uh, printing the meat, through growing the meat. And I thought it was really interesting. I hadn't heard described this way where you're actually, you're feeding the cells. Instead of feeding an animal, you know, animals eat plants and then they get big and fat and then you slaughter them and you take the meat and you make steaks out of it. Instead of doing that, you're just directly feeding the cells, the the plants essentially, right? Which is a pretty cool way to to look at it. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, I think, you know, the imagination often finds the answer in the simplest uh, space. You know, sometimes we're just being too complicated. Uh, so yeah, we don't actually need to feed the whole cow. Uh, we can get only the parts of the cow that we actually eat, such as, you know, the muscle and fiber and fats and take those cells. And then that just, uh, the company that's featured in our film actually sent this Indiana Jones kind of guy around all over the world, looking at, uh, very and collecting various kinds of plant proteins, um, and studying them from a scientific standpoint, what their properties are. And so they were able to create an all vegetable, like amniotic fluid for the cells to grow in Mm. because previously they and the organ generators are using bovine uh, fetal fluid or amniotic fluid to grow the organs or the cells. But they incredibly found this way to get around that. Um, And yeah, you're just feeding the cells. You don't need to give them all the antibiotics or chemicals or other things that they need. You can just give the cells exactly what they need. And you, you can even then later see how the product comes out and then change it. So you're really creating the ideal chicken. Yeah. And the big, uh, one of the big regulatory hurdles there, right, is, and and they referenced the same thing happening with milk, which I, which I thought was kind of interesting because I don't think there's a problem with, I mean, they talked about like, well, that milk has already lost that battle because there's almond milk and coconut milk. And I mean, every no one's going to confuse cow's milk with almond milk. But anyway, that's, that's a whole different discussion. But when it comes down to labeling, so th- there was the, the the part of it where, you know, they're bringing on like the, the lobbyist or the people for for the beef lobby talking about, well, we're, we're not going to allow this stuff to be, to be sold next to, uh, you know, actual meat. From my perspective, as as a consumer, um, I think competition is great. You would think that just the uh, the companies themselves, the producers of each product, would want you know you don't want people committing fraud saying something is something that it's not. But if you're honest and, and forthright with the labeling, I see. I know you know you know the regulatory state is uh, you know. Not, not just going to agree to that, but just from a consumer perspective, I think most consumers would be okay with that. Um, really depends on how much we want to make our entire society bound around permission mm-hmm. versus bound around choice. Right. And I think in some instances, you're absolutely right. Why are we treating people like they're children? They can't do research and buy a product and understand where it comes out. I don't think just food is going to try to tell people that it was made from 
slaughtered animals. Right. I think they're going to say it wasn't. Yeah, that's kind of that's kind <laughs> of their marketing pitch, right? <laughs> right. So you're going to know and be able to decide for yourself what you want to do. And, um, you know, so that's why I think that we, whenever you sort of break these things down, uh, which we did in the film, you can see that often there's someone who has a current interest that they want to protect. And they will be using the regulatory state as a weapon against new entrants uh, to protect their position. And so mm -hmm. for us, uh, we really saw the film thematically as exploring the connection between innovation and regulation, but really the, the connections between optimism and pessimism. You know, the pessimist view is everything that right now is the best that it could be. It's only going to get worse. Mm -hmm. We can't allow there to be any change. We need to protect what we have, you know, whereas the optimist is it's always going to get better because we have people thinking and working on right. these things and coming up with solutions. And so we need to give them freedom to to do that. And we need to be free to support it or not, you know, mm -hmm. and you really find these mentalities within everyone. We, we have both voices in our head, the devil and the angel talking to us. Sometimes, perhaps, the pessimist is of value. Sometimes, the optimist is of value. We made the documentary because we think that the pessimism is getting way too much airtime. I agree. <laughs> it kind of going along that same track, I, I like that, optimist versus pessimist. And I think when you look at climate change, really the, the pessimist has, has been getting all of the airplay and looking at it from the perspective of which, which I think is good to a certain extent is, you know, let's, let's reduce our emissions. And that's the only way to solve this. We have to put constraints in place and, and on from there, kind of the only way to look at the problem. That's why I thought it was so refreshing in your documentary where you're looking at it from the perspective of, you know, if you give humans enough time, um, we are innovative enough that we're going to figure out a way to solve a problem. And, you know, th these forecasts, they do these long-term economic models looking at, you know, 40, 60 years from now, um, this will be the impacts of climate change on the economy, on, on infrastructure, on, on everything. But that's not, I mean, that's not factoring any, any of the innovation, any of the innovation, especially something that, you know, you showed here in the documentary, which is these synthetic trees, which can take out a thousand times, yeah, I think a thousand times as much as a normal tree, just scrubbing the atmosphere of CO2, which I think ultimately that's going to be what, what saves us from any sort of impacts from climate change. Yeah, well, you know, it's hard to calculate nonlinear change, you know? I mean, it's hard to, I think, look out at, you know, like capitalism or a free market and know what it's going to do. I mean, that's sort of the rub, right? We can see that if we let, give people freedom to create, we know they're going to create, but we don't know what. There's no way to like reductively calculate that. Um, whereas these views that are looking at, you know, alarming statistics 50 or 100 years out, um, they're, the thing that we always have to keep in mind when we look at those is they are not factoring the people that will be born, go to college and open companies and come up with ideas over that 50 to 100 year period. Mm -hmm. And when you throw that in there, I'm not saying it's not something to be concerned about or worried about. Maybe those people need to be focused on that. But when you add that component in, these problems are all imminently solvable. I just I just think it's 
thought thinking about it from another standpoint and looking at human technological growth and where we've come from the past 200 years and you start imagining 50 years out well look at the uh, past 20 years you look at technology <laughs> i mean it's... right right exactly i mean the, it's a perilous thing to do which uh, mm-hmm. one of the speakers in our film patrick allett a professor of history uh we ask him this question well can you know what the future is from studying the past and he says absolutely not <laughs> you know because and then mm-hmm. he he sort of quotes this time magazine article that we had in the film that uh you know was predictive from the 50s about what 2000 would look like and you know of course there's no moon women's rights civil rights things are nuclear powered you know they're just doing a vision of the future almost like steampunk from their own position mm-hmm. and so that's why it's so important to look at what these innovators are doing uh, and to let them experiment because who knows what the human imagination is going to come up with when it focuses its energies. So just to pause for a minute, you were talking about um, some of the individuals who were interviewed there. We've talked about some of the companies. I want to come back to these later two, pro- these other two problems that, that were addressed during the film. But if you could just talk about how difficult was it and how long did it take for you to pull this together with all of these experts, these regulatory experts, lawyers, and then all of the incredible footage shot with all these companies. Uh, well, I have to do a big shout out to the whole team on that. Uh, you know, we have a great uh, DP, Ben Gaskell, responsible for the look of the film, Michael Ozias, director of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, we all work very collaboratively together. Uh, Victoria Hill, Daniel Hanna. Uh, involved in producing and editing the film. So um, the way we did it is by having a lot of smart people who get the idea and were passionate about the theme and the message and the whole uh, pursuit of it. Um, we've been very fortunate uh, to be able to work with some of these folks before, economists like Alex Tabarak and you know Tom Bell. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the relationships were new for us, like uh, Julie uh, Steele Friedman from the Futurist Society. I'd never talked to a futurist before. So that was quite insightful to kind of get that perspective. Um, And uh, yeah, so we uh, did probably about three months of development, three or four months of development. Then it probably took about like six to eight months to complete production, not going straight all the way through, but, you know, having, we're going here, there, and yonder variously, but then we wrapped it. And then probably about four to five months in post-production. And then we, uh, we were wrapped on it. When was this footage mostly shot? How many years ago? Within the past year or two years? Um, so it was mostly shot in 2018 and 2019. Okay. You know, early part of 2019. We completed post the end of 2019, and then we were all rolling it out, having community events starting uh, in early 2020, and then suddenly that got ground to a halt, <laughs> along so, with everything else. So just to since we're talking about you know the – how, how the sausage was made. Um, where can people watch this now? I, I was able to watch it through like a, a private link, but where can, oh, or, or yeah. where, where will people be able to watch it? Well, in the United States, uh, we have distribution through Gravitas and they, um, they're a distributor, not where you would get it. So you can actually get it on, as of March 23rd, you can get it on YouTube. You can get it on Xbox and PlayStation and, you know, your cable provider dish. Okay. So pretty much Apple, wherever you, you know, purchase uh, and watch streaming, uh, you can get our film. They say it can't be done. Yeah, it's an outstanding film. Highly recommend it. We got more to talk about here. 
so let's let's get into these uh, these other two problems and let, let's go with uh, the ocean sustainability because that w- that one was it, it it amazed me that more people aren't doing this really um, after you start getting into it and seeing how and it seems simple seeing it from the perspective of the viewer but I'm sure there's a lot that goes into it but can you talk about the what, what Catalina Sea Ranch what they're doing there this is off the coast of California in federal waters right. Yeah, so <clears throat> Catalina Sea Ranch and Primary Ocean Providers are actually two companies that we featured in the film that are working together in the first open sea farm, or technically ranch, because I think giant kelp and mussels are animals. But anyway, uh, they're off the shore of California. I was out there. You can't see anything, no land. Um, it's free floating. Uh, and what they do is they have buoys and they have ropes and then they big thick Navy ropes. And so they attach the muscles to them and the muscles just grow. And then similarly, uh, the kelp is also, is also treated in the same way in the same vicinity. And, uh, the magic of this is when you look at our planet and you see the oceans that are mm-hmm. vast, there is life there, but it's kind of like life in a desert. You know, our oceans are like great Saharas in a sense. Mm -hmm. Um, And the prospect of people creating farms on the open sea in all that vastness, uh, the idea maybe calls a, you know, I don't know, the tilling of the land and the cutting down of the trees. But the thing about the ocean is they actually would be bringing life. So if you imagine the whales and the sharks and the plankton and, you know, all the other sea creatures, this is food for them, mm-hmm. you know? And so um, it promotes, uh, you know, it's kind of just a wonderful, simple solution. Let's just farm the sea. It adds nutrients. It doesn't require any fertilizer or even food. And uh, we can benefit from harvesting the kelp and all the products to feed people. But at the same time, we kind of, epically increase ocean sea life uh, and then clean the water because they're all filter feeders. Yeah. It is the input. um, There's really no input other than the initial setup. Right. I know that uh, the regulations around it though, were a little bit tricky, right? With the, they had to be out in federal waters. You couldn't be in California waters. Right. So that's a sticking point. I mean, uh, the, the tricky thing about the regulations that we found in almost all the stories is you don't ever find some evil regulator man who is uh, Mr. Bad Guy just trying to make life miserable for the entrepreneur, like it's his job. It's um, it's systematic, you know. Mm-hmm. So the questions are, hey, I want to start an ocean sea farm. Where can I do it? Um, okay, who do I even ask to give me permission <laughs> to do it? Right. You know, and then, and then, and then those people don't know the answer, you know, they're just like, Oh, so wildlife, uh, you know, California state-based, uh, well, we don't know. I mean, federal, well, which federal agency they wound up, I think using the army Corps of engineers to get the permit. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and I don't think anything like that had been done before. And so you have a lot of startup costs and confusion, just figuring out what you're doing at all. Plus, you're in an undiscovered country, like you're doing something on the open sea. There's a lot of things that are going to happen that you don't expect. Yeah. And then the products, like the mussels, 
regulations were uh, for testing the muscles were centered around naturally found muscles, which are you know either ocean bed or they're far apart. Um, these muscles are all grown within about twenty to forty feet of each other. They're just sound so, like big, big columns, right? They go uh, down, isn't it? Yeah. Big columns is what you'll see. You know, some of our underwater footage. And so the fact of the matter is, is if one of those muscles tests bad, all of the muscles are going to test bad because mm-hmm. they're all right in proximity to one another. Um, and yet the, you know, the regulators sort of just told the Catalina Sea Ranch that, well, you just have to follow the same regulations that we have, even though they don't apply to you. Um, and so they're down there doing testing, which is very expensive. And they weren't even able to test because... Uh, there were no certified testing facilities on the West Coast. Uh, they built their own testing facility, which they said there's a backup. Then it was like, oh, there's a long waiting list for us to certify testing places. So they weren't even able to certify them in their own lab that they built on their own expense. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they were flying these muscles from California to, I think, like Prince Edward's Island. Or like, you know, maybe it was in Maine, but they're way out there to be tested. And you just got to think to yourself, like, what a crazy idea. What a crazy system. Why would you do this? It makes no sense. Is this really protecting consumers or are we just obeying almost random rules that just don't apply? Yeah. I mean, you almost, and it's a good point you brought up. It's not like there's like evil people, at least in this instance, there's not evil people in the government, which are standing in the way saying, we don't want you doing this. It's the, just the way that the bureaucracy is built and it doesn't have the flexibility to allow for this innovation in this particular area. So, I mean, this, this, uh, this company, Catalina Sea Ranchers, and who's the other one? The other company? Primary Ocean Providers. Primary Ocean Providers. These, these two are trailblazing away, hopefully, that they'll, in doing their entrepreneurship and uh, disrupting the industry, much like, I think, I forget in which uh, problem is talked about with Uber. Um, you know, when Uber broke into the market, you know, people thought it was crazy to get in a, str- a stranger's car and uh, have them drive you somewhere. But this is like the same thing, right? So it's just the the a new, it would be great if there weren't more regulations built around it. But if, if there are maybe some helpful regulations that can be built to make life easier, obviously, so they're not flying their muscles coast to coast just to uh, get them tested, that would be nice. But uh, I have confidence that those things will get resolved over time. Uh, yeah, I think that the main sort of takeaway we discovered is uh, our regulatory system is built for industrial capitalism. You know, it, it needs ideally factories where people go mm-hmm. uh, making products that are the same mass produced for everyone for it to actually work. When you start getting with bespoke products that are just for you, like your printed liver um, or, you know, products that are not from animals, but grown in a lab, that's meat. Suddenly the digital economy is operating under a different set of rules and at a different speed than the industrial regulatory model that was designed to cover industrial capitalism Mm -hmm. as capable of addressing. And so, you know, ultimately I kind of feel like reform needs to be a kind of sea change reform. It's not like, well, let's just change this little law here and let's just change that little law there. It really needs to be kind of a wholesale reevaluation 
of how we regulate business. And space needs to be created for trailblazers to mm-hmm. experiment. Which is difficult to do, difficult to break through and have that change, as was pointed out in the film, that large companies love regulation. And that's something that, that I talk about on this show and we talk about on our network here, Lions of Liberty, that these large, especially when you look at you know social media, you look at all, all different industries, manufacturing, the biggest companies, they want the regulations because that prevents uh, – the innovators and the d- disruptors from making an entrance and uh, and competing with them, so it's it's hard it's hard to see how this is going to play out um, over time. It's not, and I, I agree with you. I mean, there needs to be a massive overhaul, but it's hard to envision. I, I don't have trouble envisioning how the you know that entrepreneurs and you know people who are willing to take risks will solve these problems. I think we can do that. I guess my um, concern is that some of these problems maybe won't be solved because there could be regulators standing in the way. Yeah. Uh, Well, that's one thing I feel like a lot of the folks that we talk to in the film and others who have reacted to the film who are from academia or have a regulatory background, you know, this, this isn't true of all of them. But I've sensed and heard answers such as, well, why don't these entrepreneurs just figure the regulatory cost into their business or just hire a, a person who's an expert in all this and knows what all the code is, and then they know they're fully compliant. And, uh, you know, or, well, you know, we just need to wait to make sure it's safe. Well, when you're an entrepreneur and you hear those things, it's, well, maybe we need to wait so long that my $20 million small startup that I scraped together investment and venture capital for now is bankrupt. Mm -hmm. And all of these people who are brilliant scientists and engineers who I've convinced to come work with me on this vision to bring this food to the world now need to go find something else to do. And then the technology never really takes off because it was, I think it's Tom, Tom Bell describes it was you know, strangled in the crib and so was not allowed to really grow up and, and, you know, even come to the market for consumers to have a choice. And so I don't think there's a conscious awareness really of what the entrepreneurs face, at least from the part of the regulation, the regular regulators, because they don't face the same incentives. Well, I mean, your film is doing a great job to at least, I hope, open some people's eyes on that front. But let's let's move on and talk about, <clears throat> I think from my perspective, the, the most interesting part and the most, like I said at the outset here, kind of the most shocking for me personally that growing, you know, growing organs and growing uh, artificial bladders and things like that from, you know, human cells from, you could literally take your own, they could use your own cells to grow an organ is something that is really very, very possible right now. So that experience for you, was that something that, that you were familiar with going in that you'd you know, done a lot of research on? Or was this, you know, sort of going into this process? Were, were you surprised as well? Well, certainly we were surprised by almost all of these technologies that we saw when we Googled and found them and the people behind them. So Dr. Atala at Wake Forest uh, Center for Regenerative Medicine uh, you know, we found him cause he actually has been working on this for about 20 years. Um, and he created the first lab grown bladders and put, uh, them into patients on like an experimental, like allowed, 
you know, uh, procedure. And we featured uh, Luke in the film, who was a recipient of one of these bladders. And, you know, I was able to live and have a normal life as a result of getting it. Uh, but that was 17 years ago. Wow. And, um, yeah, so to go in now and see they have made improvements in the sense that they're using 3D printing technology to automate the production of these um you know, organs. And they have a lot of other really cool things too. Like they call it like the chip on a body on a chip where they can sort of miniature create miniature organs and put it on a chip and then test drugs that way, you know, mm-hmm. rather than having it be with a human or an animal and just see exactly how the organs are going to perform. So there's a lot that they can do with this technology. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, in one panel, uh, Dr. Atala told, uh, he said that he spends 75% of his time, trying to raise money isn't that that was so shocking to me that this guy who is a genius and has surrounded himself with uh other you know geniuses and innovators julie alexson is in the film 75 percent of his time is going towards raising money to meet the testing requirements of the fda not improving the product it's insanity and the one stat it was something like um, how many drugs does the FDA approve every year? You know, somebody would probably, I, I would guess before hearing this, like 100, 200, maybe 500, something like 14 on average. That's- yeah, that bite was from Dan Troy, who was general counsel at the FDA. So kind of like from the horse's mouth. Yeah. Uh, and I think even he was shocked, you know, when he went to the FDA and found out this is the case. Broadly, the understanding is, well, the guys are working on it. Everybody's working on it. And you just sort of assume the work's getting done mm-hmm. um, because you never see the things that don't come to market, you know, the what is, the what is not seen piece of it. Right. Uh, similarly, it's like 122,000 people on the Oregon wait, wait list. Okay, well, what if we like, we didn't do this. We just, I think, took what is current. But what if we went back 15 years? You know, that's millions. Mm-hmm. And so we don't ever hear, and the regulators are not held responsible for the fact that millions died who could have used technology out of fear that, you know, I don't know, millions, some hundreds of thousands, it's maybe like a, a dark calculus, but at a certain point, it's their job to make it where you're having to pick what is best for everyone. Mm-hmm. And so to allow the experimentation and to create rules and pathways for it to be done seems imperative when you think about the cost that way. Yeah. Uh, allowing people to, to have that choice to, you know, take in an experimental organ that it, it might not work, they might die, but um, if they're not going to get an organ anyway, they're going to die anyway. So it gives them a chance to live. And also it's, you know, farthers that, that, uh, that research to, to the point that, you know, it gets better. And, you know, the next one is better. The next one's better. And you start to learn things. It, it just feels like, especially with, with the organs, I, th- this is one of the ones where I don't see how our current regulatory state is going to deal with something like 3D printed organs in the way it's currently built. I just don't, I don't see it happening. So, yeah, I think they have a tough road ahead. But, uh, you know, there's things that, that this don't need to be happening. Like, so for example... Uh, they take a cell culture of your, let's say, kidney or liver or skin, mm-hmm. and then they build. They use this this resin, 
and that's sort of they print that. So you see in the film the printing of an ear, and it's sort of it's white. You're like, this isn't an ear. Well, that's what they put the cells onto. So then they print the cells on top of that. The cells then eat away at that, um, you know, substance. And then that, that substance disappears because the cells have eaten it. And then it's literally just your ear. And, uh, you know, and then they can, they can put it on. But because there is biologics and also non-biologics, you know, the scaffolding, right. uh, they then have to test. They have to meet the medical device regulations that were not written at all for this because it's not actually a medical device. They have to do the biologics. Of course, the biologics were not designed for this. So they're kind of getting double penalized. Right. And, uh, you know, it's just really frustrating when you look at that and you're just, you know, uh, from the standpoint of you guys are just moving the goalpost just mm -hmm. way, way out for no reason, way impossible, making it longer before we can all benefit from the technology. Right. So kind of, kind of zoom, zooming back out here to the uh, high level view, looking looking at all of these different um, industries and just the just innovative space as a whole that that you uncovered or that that wasn't covered in the uh, the making of this uh, this film. What what is one thing that really surprised you that uh, you know you went into this and um, sort so, sort of sort of knocked you back on your feet. You know, I kind of probably walked into this expecting that the regulators would have been more ba of bad guys. You know, I would have thought probably they're more, we're going to tell you what to do and control you. Um, but then what we learned is that's actually not really the MO. You know, everybody kind of wants to do good. Now, maybe if you have a bad set of ideas mm -hmm. and a bad modus operandi, you're going to be doing bad, even though you think you're doing good. Um but we just we were kind of surprised that uh, the story was as complex as it was, and you really have these systems. Of course, if the people are the problem, then you can change the people. But when the system is the problem, and then the people within it who maybe would change it if they had the power, but unfortunately must act within it, um, that sort of causes some despair. <laughs> you yeah. know, well, it's 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 kind of it's a problem with really our culture today in that, you know, we look, we're just like a, uh, we're an instant gratification culture. And when it comes to politics, we look to, well, let's solve our problems. We just need to elect a new president. And you look at like the, the charts that they have for, you know, the red line and the blue line for who thinks the president's doing good, who thinks the president's doing poorly. And then on inauguration day, whichever president gets in power, they just flip that day automatically. It's like right. well, nothing changed though. <laughs> nothing really changed. So it's, I don't know. It's, it's a, it's a complicated cultural issue that um, I don't know how we create a, I mean, you create a better system by throwing the whole thing out and starting over. But I don't know how we, how we get to that point that convince enough people we need to really start from scratch here. Well, you know, I am really happy to have the opportunity to come on your show. And, you know, we were pleased to make the film. I think that, you know, for, from my standpoint, I really look at it as cultural problem. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a news media that focuses on what we have now and how it's going to go away and all the problems that are out there. And even though there's millions of people around the world and it wasn't really that hard 
for us to find the guys who are in our film, yeah. you know, FYI. Uh, there's lots of people working on making the world better and innovating. Right. And they have a lot of grand, big ideas. We just never hear about them. And, uh, you know, and then they're often, you know, ascribed to have nefarious intent. Well, you just want to make money and rape the earth. Uh, you know, when we talk, I had the opportunity, you know, with our team to spend time with these, you know, the innovators that you see in the film and they are what you see, you know, they're people who want, they have a grand vision, you know, of something great that would help people and be cool and amazing and awesome. And that's what they want to do. And that's what they're motivated by. It's not riches or Scrooge McDuck, Mm -hmm. you know, they're motivated by achieving the grand vision. And, uh, the fact of the matter is these presidents or politicians, they don't really do any achieving of grand visions, <laughs> you know, that they can't, right. uh, that's not what the role is. Uh, the, the grand visions are like Elon and, you know, Bezos and, you know, and then, uh, you know, Josh Tetrick and Klaus Lochner and the people in the film who have, uh, spent time to develop, uh, a goal and then went to work on it and generated technology and solutions. And they may just be solving one small thing, but the consequences of that solution are incredible, mm-hmm. you know, because uh, the innovation stack. No, that's, that's awesome. And it's been great getting to talk with you too. Uh, this has been enlightening. I know my viewers and my listeners are, are going to love, uh, love this episode. If you could just remind everyone where they can find the film and uh, anything else that you want to plug or any, any, uh, any parting, uh, parting wisdom you want to lay on us, have at it. Uh, no, I just want to say thank you again for having me and thank you to everyone who watches the film. We had a team of about, you know, 20 people, um, you know, working on this project. We spent years on it, on it, but you will watch it in about an hour and a half. Um, but there's nothing more gratifying when you spend all that time working on something than people taking the time to watch your film. And we'd love to hear what you think. And, um, you know, we structured the film, not in a way that's sort of didactic and trying to tell you what to think, but rather in a way that begins with a question and then ends with a deeper question. And so, um, I think, uh, you know, we'd love to hear your reaction to that. And then if you're like a young person who's looking at this, sometimes I do panels at colleges. I would just say, uh, you know, when you're thinking about what to do with your life, these uh, innovators in the film are a good model. And maybe if you cannot be them or you don't have that same idea, you can find them and, mm-hmm. and help to, you know, to bring solutions rather than just argue and regulate what we have now. Uh, uh, that's a great point. <laughs> Honestly, it's made me reflect on what, what I'm doing with, with my life if I'm doing enough. But uh, no, that's that's an, that's an outstanding point and great. I, I watched my daughter's five. I watched about she watched about twenty minutes of with me, and uh, you know a lot of it went over her head. But I wanted her to see some of it because it's you know it's it, it, interesting, fascinating stuff. But uh, Patrick, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate your time and uh, have a good one. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Bye. I'll cut there. All right, guys, taking a quick break here. Last week, I talked to you about uh, Tyler Colford and his new song, also known as Crypto Man. And uh, he's featured on a track with Intrinsic. It's called First World Problems. Basically, what it's doing is it's talking about different concepts are woven throughout the track, you know, cancel culture, grifters, inflation, innovation, all kinds of different things. It's a really, really interesting track. The video dropped this past week. It is amazing to actually the taxation is death. 
mug that we sell in the Lions of Liberty store, lionsofliberty.store. You can pick yours up today. Makes the debut in the video. Going to link to the video on the show notes page. But please, please, on top of that, of course, like the video, share the video. Please go wherever you listen to your music, iHeartRadio, whichever one of these places where you listen to music, please like and follow Crypto Man. And please like this song, share with your friends. And it's just an awesome song, guys. So I got a clip for you. Check it out. Cost of education when internet is free. Blind window makers who simply cannot see. Hope you all enjoyed that interview on Finding Freedom, another awesome guest. And hopefully you guys also have subscribed to the Lions of Liberty podcast and you're getting all three of our unique shows in your uh, little listening device delivered to your ears. Um, If you haven't, please do that. Just go to your app, you know how to do it, and subscribe. You can also leave us a five-star review and a nice comment. We would prefer if you did it on Apple Podcasts, but anywhere you can on the internet, please leave us a positive comment. Also, the three shows that we have, um, Monday's show with uh, Mark Clare, our flagship program, our longest running program, and uh, on Wednesday, Electric Liberty Land with Brian McWilliams. Um, Those guys have been killing it, and I am so excited about the direction of Lions of Liberty. Um, We're seeing some awesome numbers right now, and we're going to continue to grow, so it's great stuff. If you want to support us, we would love that too. Please go to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. You can uh, support us for as little as a couple bucks, or if you get in at a higher level, you get merchandise and access to us and all the way up to you can advertise on the show or get to even produce a show. So check it all out, patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. And if you haven't checked it out yet, please consider checking out the Lions of Liberty store where we have some awesome t-shirts. We have a taxation is death t-shirt with an awesome design. We have a wax on tax off t-shirt. And we're always coming up with new ideas and adding new t-shirt designs to the store. Check that out at lionsofliberty.store. And if you're in the pride, you get a discount on anything you buy in the store. So you do both of those things and you win. That's all I got, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fire is liberty burning. Oh, 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 o